Welcome to our weekly recording of the service here at Bigger and Blackmount Churches. I'm Mike Fucella, I'm the minister here, and we are so glad that you could join us. It's my prayer that you will be blessed by the message this week. If you'd like to find out more about us, please do get in touch. Contact me at biggerkirk09 at gmail.com. That's biggerkirk09, all lowercase, at gmail.com. So here's the message this week. situations be present with us Lord in this time together called to be your people called to walk in the way of Jesus to come with the only offering that you desire the offering of our hearts and we come seeking your words of comfort and of challenge. We pray now the prayer that you taught all those who would follow you. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Hope is going to come and bring us our scripture reading this morning. Enjoy. Today's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea, to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, 
because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Thanks be to God. Children is pre-recorded this morning. Um, you remember a couple of weeks ago, I pre-recorded a, um, a time with the children because it was dangerous. We had an explosion happening. Well, this one has open flames. It's not as dangerous as the other one, but I pre-recorded it anyway. So let's watch. When I take a wedding service here in church, I like to use illustrations, and there are lots of illustrations you can use to talk about marriage. Here's one that I've used quite often. I call it the match and the candle, because quite simply it involves matches and a candle. The match and the candle in this talk represent two types of love. The match is like romantic, passionate love when a couple first meet, when they decide that they're in love with each other, what they often experience is this. Their knees go weak whenever they see each other. They can't get enough of each other. They spend hours looking into each other's eyes. There is a spark. Romantic love is explosive and sometimes almost blinding, like lighting a match. The problem with that kind of love, like the kind of light you get from a match, is that it doesn't often last very long. Now this is going to last long because these are long matches. The light on a match usually peters out before it gets to the end of the matchstick, or it burns your fingers and you have to drop it. Romantic, passionate love, like matches, is wonderful, but it's best when it leads to this second type of love. In fact, that's God's plan for romantic love, that it leads to this second type of love, which we call companionship. The match is best, it is going to last, when it's used to light the candle. And in the same way, romantic Passionate love is best. It will last when it leads to its long-term commitment in marriage, where a husband and wife promise to each other to love and to cherish in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, as long as they both shall live. Now, even though the flame of a candle is longer lasting than the flame of a match, it can still be pretty vulnerable, can't it? If I were to walk out of this building with the candle, and if it were a windy day, what do you think would happen? That's right, it would certainly blow out. Keeping the light of the candle going can sometimes use a bit of help. If the candle goes out, what should I do? Well, yes, I should 
like another match. moms and dads and grands and grandpas need to put a little romance back into their relationship. They need some time alone. They might need to go out somewhere special together, just the two of them. Buying each other gifts or complimenting each other is another way of rekindling the flame. Sometimes, however, keeping the flame of love going needs a lot of help. Sometimes there is so much wind around that it's virtually impossible to light the match and put it to the wick of the candle again. Sometimes it needs a lot of prayer and a lot of talking and a lot of forgiveness. But sometimes, sadly, the match won't light again and a relationship between a mom and a dad or a grand and a grandpa ends, and that is what we call divorce. It's a really hard thing. It makes a lot of people very unhappy. We're going to talk a bit more later about what the Bible has to say about divorce. But for now, I'd like to say that it's a really painful thing. And kids, there are two really important things that I think that you should know about divorce. One is that If this should happen in your family, if your mom and your dad get divorced, and I know for some of you that has happened, it's never your fault. And mom and dad and all of us still love you. And secondly, no matter what happens, even when a divorce happens, God's love is there for everyone involved. And at times like that, as in all times, We should all turn to God for comfort and for him to guide us in the way forward. We're going to sing together again. This time we're going to sing the the hymn, Spirit of God, Unseen as the Wind, as we prepare to hear God's word. Let's stand and sing.
Is that one coming through? Okay, good. Great. Let's let's pray as we turn to reflect on God's word. Jesus, I have not chosen what you are to say. You are Lord, and you speak what you want us to hear. Sometimes that is words that are hard and hard to understand. But thank you for the promise of your spirit to help us to understand it. Thank you for the fact that you are a loving God. And everything that you said is consonant with your character as a loving God. Lord, we want to say to you right now that our hearts are open to hear you speak. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. For we pray in Jesus' name. In the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been exploring these last eight weeks, we've come to a passage that looks to be one of the harshest things that Jesus has to say to his followers. In the Sermon on the Mount, there in Matthew 5, he says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let that sink in a little bit. On face value, if you are a man and you divorce your wife, except for a case of sexual immorality, it seems Jesus is here condemning you. And if you are a woman who is divorced, it sounds as if Jesus is condemning you. And at the very least, Jesus is not permitting you remarry. Now, on reading that passage or hearing that passage, I imagine most of us immediately have loads and loads of questions for Jesus. Hold on here, Jesus. What about the living hell I or my friend or my sister or my brother or my parents went through in that previous marriage. Jesus, what about cases of abuse, physical, sexual, and emotional? We know those go on in marriages all the time. Why, Jesus, didn't you say anything about that? Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. 
word, it seemed like the words of the compassionate Jesus came through the rest of the gospel story. Well, no. Frankly, in my mind at least, they don't. Although Jesus is often more hard-hitting than we would like. Although Jesus does thing, say things that are intentionally provocative to get us to think more deeply. I don't believe that the face value interpretation of this passage truly reflects either who Jesus was and is or what he specifically believed about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Like we said last week, context is everything. If you don't understand the backstory to certain verses in the Bible, if you don't understand the particular phrases that are used, if you don't understand the cultural and historical context from which they come, if you don't understand how what is being said or what is recounted fits within the larger story of the book in which it is found or in the whole of Scripture, then you can and you probably will go hugely astray and totally misunderstand. And sadly, these two verses in particular, I believe, have been misunderstood for a lot of church history across various church traditions, not just our own. These words of Jesus, however, cannot be taken lightly. We can't just say, he, he said that once, and so probably it isn't significant. For one thing, if our Lord and Savior says something even once, it is significant. But these words, Jesus repeats in the two other synoptic gospels, in Mark and Luke, and he repeats them again in Matthew chapter 19, which is the passage that Hazel so kindly read for us just now. And it is to Matthew 19 that we turn to try to unravel the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. We go there because of the four places that these words occur in the Gospels. This passage is the one that gives us the best clue as to the context. The context, which is everything in trying to figure it all out. The context. Jesus, in our passage, is approached by a group of Pharisees. And they come to test him. Now we know from other places in the Gospels that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law often came to test Jesus. Came to try to trick him or to catch him off. So this bit of context is our first clue as to the meaning of Jesus' words here. 
see that the Pharisees were very concerned, as all good Jews were and are, to follow God's law given to them in the Old Testament. Jesus himself was interested in God's law. We've seen already up in the passage beginning with verse 17 of chapter 5 that we explored earlier in this series, that Jesus had a high regard for the law of Moses. The Pharisees came in this instance to test Jesus about the laws in the Old Testament concerning divorce. Now, in legal terms, divorce is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, in the law of the Old Testament. And the two brief passages about divorce there are somewhat obscure. And although they are obscure, they are surprisingly compassionate and liberal in the best sense of that word. They are compassionate and liberal when they're compared to the laws concerning divorce in the other cultures of the ancient world that surrounded Israel. Divorce in the Old Testament, it is quite clear, was permitted by God. In one of those two passages, a woman is allowed to divorce a man. And in the other passage, a man is allowed to divorce a woman. In both cases, divorce is permitted because one or the other party in the marriage breaks one or more of the marriage promises or vows. And marriage vows in the Old Testament, it's worth noting, were very similar to the vows we make today. They were, in summary, to care for the physical and emotional needs of the other. We find that in the first passage in Exodus 21. And the other, in summary, the vow was to remain faithful. We find that in Deuteronomy 24.1. To care for the other and to remain faithful. Divorce is allowed when either of those promises is broken by either party, by the man or the woman. Throughout most of Israel's history, if a man or woman broke these promises, then the other person could, if they wished, if they wished, sue for divorce. And the elders of the community would decide on the merits of the case. In Jesus' day, however, that traditional understanding of marriage and divorce was being severely undermined. And it was being undermined by a certain rabbinical school established by a rabbi named Hillel. This is an important bit of the context here. People under the influence of this man Hillel decided as a result of his interpretation of one of those two verses of Deuteronomy 24.1 that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. 
any and every reason a man could put away his wife. And he could do it on a whim by just writing her a a certificate. A good comparison might be he could do it by texting her or putting a note on the fridge. And notice that for the proponents of the any cause divorce that Hillel was advocating, only men could initiate the breakup. They based their argument on only one of those two verses traditionally used to determine the rights and wrongs of divorce cases in the Old Testament. In the other passage, the Exodus passage, it speaks of a woman initiating the divorce. But they ignore that verse. Not only were the Hillelites considering only half of the story that Moses gave the Israelites in the law, but they used some pretty dodgy linguistic gymnastics to come to the conclusion that a man can divorce his wife for any and every reason. And they, a more straightforward reading of De- Deuteronomy 24.1 says that a man can only divorce his wife for an indecency, which translated into the Greek is sexual immorality, the word that Jesus uses. And according to other Old Testament texts, sexual immorality of that kind needed to be proven. And they needed a judgment from the community to decide on the case. It was not a matter that a man could just decide by texting his wife. This is the controversy that Jesus is entering into with the Pharisees that day. This any-cause divorce was very popular amongst men in first-century Palestine, as you can imagine. In fact, the ruler of the land, King Herod, had had an any-cause divorce from his first wife, and then he married Herodias, his brother's wife. John the Baptist criticized Herod for that divorce. And his criticism, as we know, ended in him losing his head. I wonder if now you're beginning to see what is going on in the story that Matthew is telling us in chapter 19, and which he also refers to in chapter 5, and what Mark and Luke also say in chapter 32. Everyone in the crowd And Matthew's earlier readers would have known very well about this any-cause divorce debate. And so the gospel readers and Jesus himself don't really need to go into much detail for them. But for us, we really need this background. They would have understood that this controversy was all about that one particular verse in Deuteronomy The Pharisees want to catch Jesus out 
They want him to become an enemy of Herod and of the many men that were there in the crowd that day. So they come to him with a specific question about a specific verse in Deuteronomy 24. Their question is, in paraphrase, Jesus, does Deuteronomy 24.1 say a man can divorce his wife by any means for any cause with a certificate? Or does it say that he can divorce her only for sexual immorality? They're not asking him. They're not asking Jesus. Jesus, is it okay for people to get divorced? They're not asking him, does a spouse have to stay with a partner who is abusive? They are not asking him if it is okay for someone to remarry after they have been divorced because of broken vows. They're asking one specific question. Does Deuteronomy 24.1 say a man can divorce his wife by means of a certificate for any and every cause, or does it say that he can divorce her for se- only for sexual immorality? What is Jesus' answer? Well, in Jesus' usual style by way of trying to get these people to think more deeply, he asked them this question in answer to their question. Haven't you read? So on and so forth. We'll come back to that. But the Pharisees aren't going to let Jesus off the hook here. So they ask him again about Deuteronomy 24.1. They ask, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. It is then that Jesus finally answers their specific question. And Jesus' answer is this in paraphrase. In Deuteronomy 24.1, in this specific verse, it says that a man can divorce his wife for sexual immorality for sexual immorality in this verse. Therefore, if you divorce your wife for any and every cause, like the Hillelites are advocating, you are breaking God's law, and that divorce is not valid. And if you marry again in those specific circumstances, putting your wife away on a whim for the flimsiest of reasons, then you, in fact, commit adultery. And furthermore, you force your wife to commit adultery. And you force the man who marries her to commit adultery. And all of society just goes kaput because of Hillel's theory about divorce. Here, I have come to understand, is answering one specific question about one specific verse. He's 
Jesus is not saying that all divorce is impermissible. In my understanding, Jesus would have agreed with the Old Testament law that divorce is legitimately prayed for by someone who is the victim of a partner breaking a very serious marriage vow, caring for the physical and emotional needs of the other, and remaining faithful till death do you part. Although I believe that Jesus permitted divorce, I also believe that he took marriage very, very seriously, and so should you as his followers. For Jesus, following the Old Testament, marriage was and is a covenant. And as a covenant, it reflects God's own love for his chosen people and for his world. There in verses 4, 5, and 6, in what seems to be an evasion from the Pharisees' question, Jesus is actually getting to the heart of the issue. While the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus out and to work out what was permissible in terms of breaking off relationships, Jesus was intent on helping us all to see that God's intent for marriage is Jesus, the marriage relationship is part of that vocation that God gave all humans at the beginning. It's a vocation to reflect his image by lovingly partnering, partnering with one another and with God. It's a vocation of being fruitful and multiplying and of ruling over all is part of the work that humans are called on by God to do. And a good marriage, I don't need to tell most of you, is hard, hard work. It doesn't come naturally, and at times it can be downright painful. It can be painful to share your life so intimately with another person for two to become one. Jesus makes it clear later on in verses 10 and 12 of chapter 19 that marriage is not the only way to fulfill the vocation that we as human beings are called to. Being single, like Jesus himself was, can be just as fruitful and just as glorifying to God. But marriage, although it is not for everyone, is a uniquely beautiful way of living the life God intends for us. Marriage is for that too, becoming one. And that is why divorce is such a tragedy. Divorce is like ripping a person apart. And it's a cause for mourning like any other trauma or tragedy that we suffer. Now, I don't believe that divorce is a sin. I don't think that Jesus says that. What is a sin that goes against God's will is 
the breaking of bounds. And the breaking of bounds often leads to divorce. The words that the Pharisees use in verse 7 are interesting here. They ask Jesus in summary, what did God, or why then did God command divorce? Why then did God command divorce? Their take on Deuteronomy 24.1 was that God thought so much about the honor of the male species that when a man's wife offended him, for any cause, he must divorce her. And he can do that via text message. For the good of society, to teach women a lesson and keep them under control, God commands that he must put her away. It's a bit like what we see in the story of Esther, if you remember. When the Persian king divorces his wife because she refuses to do a strip show before his friends. The king's male advisors tell him that because the queen refused the king, all women will now despise their husbands. So their advice was divorce the queen, depose her from the throne for the good of all men and all society. That is not how the Bible responds to the Pharisees here by saying God through Moses didn't command divorce. God through Moses permitted divorce. And again, it was his understanding that it was only the victim of the breaking of the marriage vows who could sue for divorce, whether they were a man or a woman. And in Jesus' day, it was more often the woman who was the victim of the breaking of vows. According to Jesus, God permitted divorce because your heart was hard. Now, what does Jesus mean here? We've come across that phrase, hard hearts, before, haven't we? It is what caused so much trouble in Egypt when Pharaoh's heart became hard. Hard-heartedness in a relationship is when someone is unfaithful, neglectful, or abusive, yet is unrepentant. That is how it was between Pharaoh and God, and sadly, that is how it sometimes is in a marriage. But what to do when your partner breaks their vows? I don't think that it is just a coincidence that this passage about divorce comes after Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus speaks so clearly about forgiveness. In a broken and sinful world, we are all sinners. We all break our promises to one degree or another. Jesus says in just the previous section in the Sermon on the Mount that adultery happens all the time when our eyes or our hearts wander in unbridled sexual desire. And in such a world, offering forgiveness to our partners 
is necessary, especially for Christian people who will experience God's forgiveness and grace. God does not command us to divorce for every unfaithfulness. God commands us to forgive. God, however, does permit divorce. And the person who breaks their vows does so repeatedly. And in the end, it's unrepentant and hard to part. That's determining the breaking point, however, the point at which the situation is just too much for the victim or determining when the unrepentance of the, re- of the perpetrator has become clear is a hard decision to make. It will be, and in most cases I know is, a matter of much prayer and much soul searching. It's a decision ultimately for the victim of the unrepentant broken vow. And it's not a decision for you or me to make for them. We may help. We may support and give advice. We may pray with them and for them. But at the end of the day, we must let them make that decision. Now, I know the arguments here are a little bit complicated and we've had to go into detail and at some length. And you may want to search a bit deeper and look even more closely at all the passage that passages that I've referred to. There's some res- resources in the description of the video or in the weekly e- email. And I am, of course, always up for a chat with anyone who is like that although trying to understand this passage within its context may be complicated. I agree with what one of my friends said on Tuesday night as we looked at this passage together. He said in reference to the controversy that was raging over divorce in Jesus' day, Jesus seems to bring clarity. Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter doesn't side with one party or another, but Jesus shines a light on truth. Jesus shining that light helps everyone to find freedom and healing if they will come humbly and seek it. If you have experienced or are experiencing a breakdown in relationships, freedom and clarity that Jesus longs to give you and them. The subject throughout this reflection on his holy will. We seem to remind ourselves that no matter the circumstances we face at the moment, we have a friend in Jesus to whom we can and should go with everything. We think, What a friend we have. Please be seated.
2 says that God hates divorce. And the main reason that God hates it is that God himself is a divorcee. God knows the heartache and pain of divorce. Over and over, the prophets of the Old Testament speak of God's broken heart because his covenant people to whom he was married have been unfaithful. But by virtue of God's unfailing and undefeated faithfulness, he is able to redeem even that situation. Where the old covenant has been broken, God's promise through the prophets, a new or a renewed covenant. In the new covenant, God in the person of Jesus comes to fulfill all the broken vows of the old covenant. As a result, this new covenant is an unbreakable covenant. There is no vow that we can say, no promise we can take to make God love us any more than how he shows us that he loves us in Jesus. Although it sounds too good to be true, the only way that we can enter that new covenant is by faith, by trusting in this great love that God pours out for us as a free gift for us, sinners that we are. In the new covenant, we have we who have been unfaithful rely on the faithfulness of God to fulfill all righteousness. But that's not all. With the new covenant comes the promise of a new heart. For you see, the problem with the old covenant was not the law that God gave that was to be obeyed. The problem with the old covenant was our old hearts. The problem with the old covenant was our hearts that were so bent in on themselves from sin and selfishness. They could not help but break any vow that we ever made. In this new covenant, there is forgiveness. There is redemption for the perpetrators of broken vows and promises as well as for the perfecters. In Christ, there is now no condemnation. And in Christ, there is now no power that cannot be overcome. He gives us his power to overcome even the most intransigent of Through this covenant, we have life. Through it, there is the possibility for us all to begin anew. 
whether we are victims or perpetrators of any and everything, here is the place, here is the place where we can begin anew. Here at this table, and this table is open to all who will come and eat with Jesus and his family. If you're a visitor here to our church and you love and you trust the Lord Jesus, you are welcome. You are welcome to come and join in this special meal. Now we'll do things a bit differently as we have been doing throughout the pandemic. You've got the bread and the wine. And uh, we will eat together and drink together in the coming moments. Hear the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and upon these gifts of bread and wine bread that we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your spirit, make us one with all who share this feast, united in love and ministry in every age and in every place. For we pray in and through our one Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. Things of God for the of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy are those who find refuge in him. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance. shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. <coughs> Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the saving death that was in your 
Lord Jesus Christ. As we do share the feast with each other afterwards and for those watching and with our friends and family, we send each other a message of peace. Let that new prayer peace with you. The peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us pray. <clears throat> God of love, we, we pray today particularly for those people in our world who have been deprived of love who feel unloved or for whom love has grown painful touch their hearts with the love of Christ we pray for those for whom love has involved pain those who have faced the trauma of breakdown in their marriage or experienced the cracks of friendship or romantic engagement, those who have come from broken homes or who have become estranged from family and friends. Touch their hearts with the love of Christ. We pray for those who find it hard to love, those whose love has been betrayed, those who are scarred by bitter and painful experiences. Those who have been subjected to abuse. Those afraid of showing their true feelings. Touch their hearts with the love of Christ. Loving God, we bring before you world of human relationships capable of bringing such joy but also such sorrow so much pleasure yet also so much pain we thank you for your gift of your unfailing unconditional agape love grant to us all the knowledge of that love whose height we may never stay and whose depth we can never fathom. For we pray in your name, the one who is love, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We sing a final hymn, the hymn Leaning on the Everlasting.